This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. I got married at the age of 24, and an older, wiser, more experienced friend gave me some advice that has proved very useful over the years. He told me, you have a choice. You can be right, or you can be married. Today's guest, Vlad Chituk, gives us a similar choice when we are advocating for a plant-based or vegan world. You can be right, or you can be effective. So Vlad is a behavioral economics researcher at Duke University. He works with uh, Dan Ariely, who is the author of Predictably Irrational, at the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke, and he focuses on issues of ethics, morality, and decision-making. And I met him a few weeks before we did this interview because my daughter has been working at the center, and she introduced me to him. And, you know, as both plant-based folks, we started chatting. And the chat went in a very unexpected direction because I was struck first by his veganism and his commitment to reduce animal suffering, but also by his contrarian views on how we get there and especially on the really cool research behind them. And so what Vlad advocates is powerful, controversial, and I suspect that a number of ethical vegans listening to this are going to get fairly upset. And I don't mean to make waves. I, don't, I never want to enhance conflict, but his views are really important. And when you understand that we're all on the same side, we're all trying to move toward a better world, then a frank discussion of strategy and how well it's working is always a welcome thing. So before we jump in, a couple of things. First, Vlad gets excited when he talks about these issues. And when Vlad gets excited, two things happen. First of all, he talks really fast. And you'll get used to it. I did after the first couple of minutes. Um, my, sort of, my brain sort of settled into, uh, into Vlad's speed, and it was fine. And second, he uses what we shall call salty language. And originally I thought, well, I'll, I'll just bleep out the few times that he drops an F-bomb or says an S-word or whatever else. But I was, I was making notes um, with timestamps. But when I reached like 22 <laughs> timestamps, I thought, you know what? I'm never going to do this. So I can either like spend hours bleeping it out or just run it as is and give you this warning. So if you are offended by colorful words, or if you typically play this podcast to elementary school children, you may want to make a pass for this episode. Otherwise, I invite you to stay tuned, uh, strap in, hold on to your hats, and without further ado, Vlad Chituk, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Oh, it's so great to be on here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I wanted to recapitulate a conversation we had a few weeks ago yeah. that was just so fascinating. <laughs> um, so why don't, why don't we start by just uh, sure. giving folks a, a sense of, of who you are, what you do, and how you got here. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, so uh, I'm an associate in research uh, at the Center for Advanced Hindsight here at Duke University, uh, which is Dan Ariely, um, the kind of awesome, big-named uh, behavioral economist uh, here at Duke. Um, I've been with them for about three years at this point. Uh, I joined his lab um, a little bit after I graduated from undergrad, uh, I studied psychology at Yale University, um, and I've been working uh, with Dan here at Duke more or less since. Um, I became vegan uh, two or three years ago. I've been a vegetarian since 
I think I was like 19 or so. Um, and I kind of realized that all the reasons I had to be a vegetarian pretty much applied to, you know, eating eggs and, and cheese and stuff. So, um, it, I, I found that transition kind of difficult, but once it happened, um, I've more or less been vegan since. And I realized um, a lot of the research I've been doing in moral psychology actually had a lot to say in terms of informing how we think about veganism and how people respond to veganism um, and other sort of moral issues where there's a lot of contention. So, so that's sort of, from a personal standpoint, what I'm interested in also what more and more of my research academically and uh, professionally has been gearing towards is is how we respond to people of different moral beliefs uh, than we do and, and how that ends up playing out and how we can address that most effectively. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's um, I think, become a big topic lately, partly because so much of our public discourse has become polarized around, yeah. you know, we, we're right and they're wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, I, re- I remember from growing up in, uh, you know, sort of the 1970s in a pretty political family, that, you know, we disagreed with people, but we didn't necessarily think they were the devil. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's, I want to go back to something you said. You said you, you were vegetarian yeah. from, from the age of 19? So I, I think I had the dumbest reason for going vegetarian. I think I was, it was my sophomore year of college. I think I was just like in a sophomore slump. And I was just like, man, like, I'm just kind of bored and I feel like I need to do something different in my life. Like, fuck, I might as well go vegetarian. And like, that was just, I just decided not to eat me. I think, I mean, I always kind of felt uh, that there was something a little morally off about it, but like, I wish I had a better reason to have gone. It wasn't like I was reading, you know, the literature about how animals feel pain or something. I wasn't like looking at the factory farming stats. I was just kind of sad and bored one day. And I was like, yeah, I might uh-huh. as well. Yeah, so. well, we, we, we could say that your, uh, your soul took, uh, took advantage of a vulnerable moment of your personality to, uh, something like that, to yeah. enforce something. Yeah, and I've just been, I've been vegetarian slash vegan-ish. So I, I used to describe myself as mostly vegan, um, which maybe we can touch on in a little bit. Um, but then I started giving talks at vegan conferences, and I felt like it's weird. You feel kind of this pull towards, like, moral, moral purity that's... Um, that's, you know, when you're in a group of a bunch of other vegans, um, you kind of want to trump up your vegan credentials a little bit. So I've, I've dropped them mostly, but I'm thinking of bringing it back. I think I like, I like the phrase mostly vegan. I think that's a good way to describe my diet. But uh-huh. Well, that's, I, I, can, I can now sense several, you know, hundred listeners <laughs> <laughs> gripping, uh, gripping their chairs, wondering where this is going to go. <laughs> don't, please don't send me angry emails. Um, so, yeah. Um, Yes, and I, and I noticed the same thing, you know, not just about vegan, but let's say I go to a, like a plant-based conference, yeah. and you get a bunch of people on stage, and there's like a free-for-all Q&A, and people are sub, subconsciously trying to out-purify each other <laughs> in terms of, no, no smoothies, yeah. no, we should go raw, no, we should yeah. eat 12 pounds of greens a day. <laughs> yeah, man, I just, yeah, that's, that always, that's... I think always kind of off-putting no matter sort of what moral domain you're in. Um, I just think it'd be a lot better if we were just kind of more chill about it. I know it like sucks to be like, you know, animal, like just chill out about animal suffering guys. Like that's, that's not the sort of message I want to send. But um, I think that at a certain point it can become more about bolstering your own moral credentials than actually doing good in the world. And And as someone who's like sort of done some, some research, both, um, you know, just reading the relevant work out there and connected to my own. I think that's something 
uh, it's very easy to kind of be tempted into and towards uh, trying to justify. Um, it's, it's very easy to treat morality as something to make you look good rather than something to actually produce some good in the world. Um, right. So I think, I think there would actually be uh, a much better, uh, I don't want to say movement, but let me just go with vegan movement uh, for lack of a better word off the top of my head. Um, if people were just chiller about it in terms of once you're 95% of the way there, um, expending kind of this ridiculous amount of time and effort to kind of go the other 5% instead of making veganism easy and accessible, I think is the wrong sort of way to go. Like once you've already gotten rid of the vast majority of animal suffering in your diet, I think at that point it's just almost not worth expanding so much time and effort and energy into making sure like the wine you drink doesn't have like fish bladder in it. Like I'm not going to stress about whether the, the sugar in like whatever I'm eating was purified using bone char or something. Like that's a level of veganism I think is almost harmful. And if that's something you're personally like into, like that's great. Um, but I think oftentimes more so than preventing animal suffering, that's just about you wanting to feel like a good vegan more than actually helping animals. Um, so I'm sure I've just pissed off a lot of people. Um, but I think I, I feel decently strongly about that. I think, uh, a more relaxed, chill attitude towards, uh, at least some of the smaller things is probably, um, better in terms of making veganism an, an accessible, and less scary uh, diet and lifestyle, which is, I think, ultimately the goal. We don't want a very small group of like extremely pure vegans kind of just feeling better than everyone. We want to reduce animal suffering in the world. And I think a way to do that is to, to be a little bit more laid back and accessible. Mm. Well, so if, if, if we say that that's, that's the dividing line and that's, that's the, the, this conversation is about how to be more effective yeah. in reducing animal suffering. Yeah. So let's let's take that as okay. as the basis. Sure. And then you you know you've done some really interesting research and you've studied a lot of really interesting yeah. research on how you get people to to be looser about their their moral sureties. Yeah. Um, so maybe it makes more sense to provide some some background and then we could loop back into this. But actually, I guess like while we're on the topic of um, sort of just reducing animal suffering uh, in terms of being effective animal advocates. There are actually some really interesting counterintuitive uh, kind of prescriptions you can get if you look at the economic literature rather than the psychological literature, which is kind of where my background is in. But there are these two economists, um, Bailey Norwood and, uh, I've got the other name written down, Jason Lusk, who wrote this book, Compassion by the Pound, where they're the only, they're, they're these two economists who look at um, they're, they're into sort of agriculture, but specifically animal agriculture. And as far as I know, it's the only sort of systematic look at not only the economics of how factory farming works, but the uh, actual condition of animals who live on factory farms. And when you take all these sorts of considerations into account, um, I think it's actually a lot more moral to eat beef than it is to eat chicken. And that if we're trying to reduce animal suffering, we're a lot better off sort of advocating people replace, replace uh, the chicken in their diet with beef. Um, like if we're going to be like, if you're going to eat any meat, you should be eating beef, uh, you should be drinking dairy, um, and then use that to sort of lower amounts of chicken and eggs. Um, so what's, what's the uh, calculus that yeah, so, that rough, you know? So there are, two, there are two components to this. First is just in terms of how bad 
the life of any given animal on a factory farm is. So it turns out that actually beef and dairy cows, so, so let me back up a second. So they had this scale from negative 10 to 10, and we can quibble with it a little bit, but the basic idea is that at negative 10, your life is like the worst possible life you could be leading as an animal. Positive 10 is you have like the best possible life you could be leading as an animal. Basically, negative numbers are your life on the whole isn't worth leading. You're just on the whole more suffering than good. Positive numbers, your life on the whole is worth leading, more good than bad. And then basically they go looking at conditions in factory farms and kind of just figure out like how good or how shitty is your life. Um, on a farm. It turns out beef cows lead the best lives in terms of uh, animals on a farm. So they're at a positive six. It's just in terms of the logistics of taking care of cows, it's, it's, it's a lot harder um, to, you know, you can't put cows in gestation crates like you do pigs. They need to roam around. They need to be in fields. Um, they haven't figured out yet kind of how to, to mechanize their lives in, in, in a shitty way as we have, say, chickens. So they're at a positive six. Um, I think there's a good argument to be made that, you know, even though their lives are on the whole worth leading, it's still not okay to kill them to eat them. Um, but I take that that's more of a controversial point. Some people could plausibly argue um, that so long as their lives are worth leading, um, that's good and that should be encouraged at least. Right. Then and, below and, and, and again, I think it's useful at this point to say that we're, we're really talking about that the, the highest level um, here is yeah. how do we reduce animal suffering? Exactly. So we're, so rather, so we're, we're, we're sort of putting veganism aside. Yeah. Um, and saying that is a strategy to reduce animal suffering. We're not going to assume yeah. in this conversation that it is the only strategy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, so living worse lives than beef cows or dairy cows because, you know, I think we all kind of know the horror is they're constantly impregnated, they have their babies taken away from them. Um, so that's at a positive four. Most of the time when they're not getting impregnated and having their babies taken away from them, they're living relatively decent lives before they, you know, die from overexhaustion from having their, their milk taken away. Um, but on the whole, so like, not a complete misery, but like on the whole, probably better than not existing at all. Um, and then uh, once you get sort of uh, into pigs and eggs and broiler chickens, uh, it gets a lot worse. So pigs basically live hellish lives. You should never eat pigs regardless of of anything. Um, it's, it's at a point where, you know, literally pigs are better off not existing uh, than, than existing. And, and you're in, talking about factory farm, farm pigs, factory not farm sort pigs. of local... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, th th this is strictly looking at factory farms. Um, okay. So pigs are at a negative five. Egg-laying hens are at a negative five. Um, I think we all know kind of the, the factory farmed egg situation. Um, more, it's actually funny. More people think... Uh, let, me, let me rephrase this. Fewer people... Um, People think fewer eggs are raised in cages than they actually are. That's how I want to phrase that. Um, I think people tend to think, I think 37% of eggs are produced by uh, eggs who are, or sorry, chickens who are in cages when it's the reality is 90% of eggs in the supermarkets are from, from caged hens. Um, so that, that's a case where people kind of completely just don't understand what's going on in terms of egg production. And egg-laying hens in factory farms, you know, I think you probably know the conditions better than I do, but, you know, lots of hens in very cramped spaces. It's basically hellish. It's awful. Um, so egg-laying hens, terrible lives. Broiler chickens, also terrible lives. Uh, they live six weeks. They're four times bigger than they were 50, 60, 70 years ago. They basically live in chronic pain, and a million are killed every hour. So, uh, so broiler chickens... I think they're at a negative one, really shitty. Um, and then where some of the more interesting economic analysis come into play are sort of two things, what the average yearly consumption is and what the elasticity uh, of the markets are. So in terms of yearly consumption, 
you know, cows are huge. Uh, you could eat meat from a cow every day and drink milk every day. And uh, at the end of the year, go nowhere near eating a full cow or drinking a cow's worth output of milk. So the average yearly consumption of beef and dairy in the U.S. constitutes one-tenth of a cow, basically. Um, when you look at pork, you're... Right, so that, that's each person eats a t an average of a tenth of a cow a year? Per year. So that, you could, that seems very low to me. I would have, if you'd asked me, to, you know, a multiple choice question, yeah. I wouldn't have come, I would have, you know, I, I mean, would have said like... Like cows are huge, dude. Like cows are giant. <laughs> so if you, if you think about, I mean, how much does a cow weigh? Like four or 500, 600 pounds, something like that? That's a lot of meat. Yeah, I, thinking about it now, I guess. Yeah. So you could go like 10 years eating steaks and then kill one cow. Um, so on the whole, like, I think cows are more important than, say, chickens. But, you know, when you look at the fact that the average person eats some like 30 chickens a year, then the calculus gets a little different. Um, the average person also eats one egg-laying chicken a year in terms of how much eggs and one pig a year in terms of how much pork they eat. So that's another consideration to take account. And then the other sort of more technical one is the elasticity of markets. So um, because I'm a behavioral economist, I can pretend to know things about real economics. Um, <laughs> basically, the way elasticity works, uh, it's a sort of relationship between supply and demand. So if markets are perfectly efficient, you know, say I eat a candy bar every week, and then I stop eating a candy bar every week, Snickers would notice that the supermarkets are, are selling one less candy bar, thus ordering one less candy bar, and then they produce one less candy bar. So that's an elasticity of one, where elasticity is perfect. But of course, markets are a little fuzzier than that. They're very efficient, usually. Um, as you can imagine, they tend to be less efficient when the things we're talking about are huge things like cows, when uh, one person eating a pound less of beef has less of an immediate impact in terms of how many cows are being ordered and how many cows are being slaughtered. So in terms of elasticity, beef and dairy cows, that's about a 0.5, where one is perfectly elastic. So if you stop eating a pound of meat, um, half a pound of meat stops being produced, basically. Uh, if you stop eating a gallon of dairy, half a gallon of dairy stops being produced. Um, when you look at pork, it's about three quarters. So for every pound of pork you stop eating, three quarters of a pound of pork stops being produced. And with eggs, it's 0.9. You can imagine eggs are, you know, that's, that's a much more discrete unit. Um, so that's a 0.9. And broiler chickens are, again, at about uh, 0.75. So when you actually do all the math in terms of reducing just the pure amount of animal suffering. Um, not only is our chicken, more chickens killed per year, eating more of a chicken every time you eat chicken, um, but not eating chicken goes further than not eating beef in terms of how many animals are actually affected. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, there's almost this kind of funny counterintuitive uh, effect where animal rights advocates might actually be increasing the amount of animal suffering in the world by encouraging people to eat chicken instead of cow. When we focus on like how smart and cute and perfect cows are, because cows are, they're really adorable. I don't want to eat cows. They're beautiful creatures. Um, some of my favorite images on the internet are of like, there are these shampooed, conditioned, and blown out cows. They're just like really fuzzy cows and they're like adorable. Um, so I love cows. Um, but I'm worried that by getting people, you know, people who aren't going to go full vegetarian or full vegan, because that's a relatively big step. If people are just shifting their diets in terms of animal suffering, they might think like, yeah, chickens are dumber than cows and then just eat more chicken. But that actually ends up maybe increasing the amount of animal suffering that happens. Mm -hmm. Which also begs the question of, you know, how are humans deciding the... Um experiences of animals yeah like, like are we you know i mean when i look at people in new york i wonder like you know where are their lives from like <laughs> negative 10 to positive 10 and you know my friends in new york yeah. have a great time but i'm like if i lived there i'd be totally miserable yeah 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 that's that's so um i used to work i'm sure again a lot of vegans are gonna be pissed off for me at this um so i cut my teeth 
doing psychological research in a comparative cognition laboratory. So with Dr. Lori Santos at Yale University, she's like the perfect person, she's amazing. Uh, she has a TED talk actually um, about some of the research we're conducting and you can see a little baby 19 year old me in this TED talk from you know, six years ago. I'm one of the people holding a grape for the capuchins. But basically we had a sort of a small capuchin colony in the medical school at Yale University, like we weren't doing any invasive research or anything. We basically would just give them food and toys to play with and like run small little behavioral economic games. So we'd like give them tokens. We'd like have a little monkey economy. So we'd give them tokens and we'd like trade them for the tokens for like different kinds of food and then see sort of how their economic preferences uh, relate to people's economic preferences. And uh, I did, I think, if not my first, my, then my, set, my close second um, first paper ever published uh, in an academic journal was research I conducted uh, in that lab on how capuchins make causal judgments. So how do they think about um, how one thing causes another? And to do that, we just gave them toys and had them use this little contraption that, uh, that sometimes activated, sometimes didn't activate, and we saw how they made inferences about that. So we did have captive capuchins. I think they lived really good lives. Um, but she, we, at the start of every lab meeting and every semester, we'd have sort of like an animal ethics uh, discussion. And there are some sort of weird counterintuitive things. I think, I want to say it's ferrets. I'm not 100% positive. It's like some sort of small, long, squirrely animal. But they were doing research on what makes these animals happy. And it turned that you could, you know, show them, you know, that you could give them a choice between like another cute little fuzzy animal or like a pool of water or like food or like a pool of water. And like every time it turns out, like even if they're starving, like their most favorite thing in the world is just like chilling in a pool of water. Like that's what they want more than anything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can imagine people from the outside like looking at ferrets chilling in a pool of water if that's what it was. It was like, it was like minx or a, a weird long animal. I don't remember 100% what it was. But from the outside looking at it, just be like, oh, they're just sitting in pools of water all day. How good could their lives be? But it's actually, if you give them a choice, like that's their, that's their nirvana right there. So it is sometimes difficult from the outside perspective to kind of figure out um, how good the life of an, of an animal is. But I think it's pretty unambiguous that, you know, uh, a, a mother pig who spends, you know, years in a crate where she can't even turn around, like that's bad. Sure. Um, you, you can sort of tell uh, when they're, they're chewing at the bars and actually showing signs of mental illness that that their lives probably pretty shitty. So take that up with Bailey Norwood and Jason Lusk. Um, they did these calculations. Read Compassion by the Pound if you're interested in, in this and want to quibble with the numbers. I'm sure they're very quibbleable. But okay, I'll, I'll put the link to that in show notes yeah. for, for uh, this episode. So if you go to plantyourself.com and search for Vlad, you'll find <laughs> this episode and you can go look up uh, Compassion by the Pound if you, if you haven't figured out how to search for it on Amazon <laughs> yourself. So I think that's the only like somewhat technical stuff I have to discuss in terms of uh, the actual way animals lead their life. But in terms of uh, actually how to get people to, to be more responsive to, say, moral persuasion, then I think there's, a, there's more interesting psychological research that we could we Yeah, could so, so we were talking about before, uh, this uh, video that I saw last night. It's a oh, yeah. PETA video, um, was it, uh, People <laughs> for the Ethical Treatment of yeah. Animals. And it, it actually made me cry. And it, sh <laughs> it shows, it shows um, this woman walking down the street and she passes a PETA protest, and you know someone's holding a sign, meat is murder, yeah. and someone hands her a pamphlet, and she takes it, and she looks at it, and then the rest of the video is short little vignettes with beautiful music in the background <laughs> showing her, her mental and spiritual evolution, where she starts thinking about it, she starts Googling, um, you know, vegan recipes, <laughs> and do, do animals have souls, oh my God. and... 
you know, and, and more and more, and every, you know, it keeps showing, you know, September, October, oh. November, and then by January 1st, she's on the line and oh. handing it out to the next person. And, I, and I'm, I'm tearing up now. <laughs> and I, you know, I cried when I saw yeah. it. And I thought, you know, is that, is that how it works? Okay. Is that, because that, that, that makes you feel like everyone should go on a line, hold the meet his murder sign, yeah. tell everybody else that their moral choices yeah. are, are terrible, and that's going to that's gonna change the world. So, uh, again, we're talking about how to reduce animal yeah. suffering. Does that work? Oh, God, I wish we lived in that world. I think in the real world, uh, if, you, if it was like a realistic uh, commercial would be about two seconds long, she could hand the pamphlet and then she'd throw it out and then that'd be that. Um, I mean, so, so, so Dan, uh, Dan Ariely, my boss, who's again, incredible. Um, he recently came out with a documentary called Dishonesty and it's basically about uh, how, how people treat lying. And one of the early scenes, you know, he does this in a lot of his talks if you've gone to see them, but he's like, how many of us have told a lie in the last like week or month or year or whatever? And like, you know, everyone raises their hand. And he's like, and how many of you guys think of yourselves as like decent, moral, honest people? And then everyone raises their hand. And he's like, so how do we reconcile these things? So there's, there's this funny, interesting thing where like no one thinks they're a bad person. Everyone wants to be a good person. Um, and, and that's actually like deeply important. Um, like even, you know, you could look at racists, like even racists don't think they're racist. Like you look at people who are like protesting segregation in the 1950s, they're like, oh, I'm not racist, I'm not racist. Um, you know, being racist is bad. I just don't want black people and white people to go to school together. Um, so, so I think once you kind of realize that no one wants to feel like a bad person, like making people feel like a bad person isn't gonna be the most effective way of advocacy. Um, there's, this, there's this psychologist, um, one of the sort of big figures in the middle of the 20th century social psychology named Leon Festinger. And he was uh, one of the big proponents of this theory that's gotten a lot of traction since called cognitive dissonance. So Leon Festinger was a graduate student, and then he saw that there was this uh, UFO cult called the Seekers who predicted that on uh, December 21st, 1954, uh, the world would end in a great flood, and then this cult would be rescued by UFOs. Um, so he saw coverage of this, and uh, he was like, man, I gotta check these guys out. He's a graduate student, he's like, this is my chance. I'm gonna study these guys and see what's going on. Because the interesting question, right, is what happens, you know, December 22nd, 1954, once they realize uh, that basically they've been living, you know, a sham for the last, you know, however many months, years. Um, and these people, like, they left their jobs, they dropped out of college, they gave away all their money. Um, so they, you know, they were pretty invested. They were invested. And then you can imagine December 21st, 1954 comes around. They're sitting you know, on this rock waiting to be uh, saved by the UFOs, and then just nothing happens. world doesn't end. Uh, you know, what's their next move? Um, and you might imagine that they, they would think like, wow, I'm just a complete fucking idiot. I just ruined my life. Um, let, me, <laughs> let me just go try to get my job back. Um, and again, I would, because people are so amazing and incredible, they, of course, no one did that. Um, you know, I'm sure some people did that, but overwhelmingly, um, you know, no one wants to feel like a fucking idiot. Um, so what they do instead is they, they became uh, environmental activists. They were convinced that their, their devotion to the cause was so inspiring to the aliens that they decided to spare the earth. So they decided to go be uh, environmentalists uh, in response. <laughs> To, to obviously just being completely wrong and mistaken about that fact that UFOs were gonna uh, end the world. So from this, he wrote uh, a book called When Prophecy Fails, which is like kind of one of the big cool books uh, in the history of social psychology, if you wanna read that. Um, but basically, he puts forward this sort of theory of cognitive dissonance. You know, we all think we're good people. 
someone comes along making us feel like a bad person, we're not going to be like, oh, yeah, you're right. Maybe I'm a bad person because we're really invested in being good people. So instead, you just completely discount uh, the information that people are, are giving you. And you, you sort of see a lot of really cool studies where people do this. There's this researcher named Hank Rothgerber. Uh, I've written a little bit about his research um, for the Daily Beast. Maybe I should have mentioned earlier, um, I'm a freelance writer. I do a lot of writing. Um, my writings appeared in the Daily Beast, uh, the New Republic, a little bit of having to post. I have actually uh, an op-ed coming out in the New York Times today, which I'm very excited about. So Congratulations. Cool. Thank you about research I just got published uh, in the journal Cognition. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Um, so I wrote this article about why drunk vegetarians eat meat for the Daily Beast. Wait, <laughs> why drunk vegetarians eat meat? Drunk vid. So for, okay. So first of all, like I fucking love this. Um, uh, I'm I'm gonna loop back around to this. But if you actually, the the USDA did a survey where they talked to vegetarians, and they asked them how much meat they eat in the last 24 hours, and the average vegetarian said they eat a serving of meat every day. <laughs> Which to me is just the funniest thing in the world. Um, and then there's this interesting, so, so this survey came out showing that a lot of drunk vegetarians eat meat. And I was kind of like, yeah, no fucking duh, a lot of vegetarians just eat meat in general. <laughs> Which again is, 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 this is kind of the, this is almost kind of dissonance par excellence, right? Like you have people who care about animal suffering, um, but then really want to eat meat, but don't want to feel like a bad person. So, so I, I don't know if this is like, you know, hitting home with a bunch of listeners. Like, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is our dirty secret. You're like, yeah, or, I just snuck a bite of steak last night and no one knew. Yeah, or, or, or whether, I mean, most, honestly, I think most, most of the, I mean, I'm, I'm much more in the plant-based community, yeah. which is sort of health-related rather yeah. than, and, than animal rights-related. And I, I, I know that there are people who have their stash of, <laughs> you know, vegan Twinkies yeah. and, and um, you know, like, you know, pe people who are very healthy all yeah. have their, you know, their, their things that they're thinking about. But to actually, you know, find veget like, I'm having trouble understanding yeah. this, that, that people who call themselves vegetarians actually eat meat once a day. Yeah, well, so, so on average. So there are a lot who don't eat meat, obviously, you know, when you're, you have some people who don't eat meat, some people who eat more meat. Um, this is just totally averages. Um, maybe the median or, or would look a little different. Um, but, I mean, in a sense, this isn't, I guess on one hand, this isn't more interesting than the fact that a lot of people just fail in their diets. Like dieters eat cake every once in a while. Um, yeah, and that's but, not it, but, super... it, but it is though. Yeah, because there, there, there's the moral element, right? Right, because I, gr I grew up um, in a f conservative Jewish community yeah. and a lot of people kept kosher. <laughs> and as far, as far as I know, yeah. you know at, least, uh, at least the people who are sort of you know, part of the community, they weren't on the yeah. outskirts, but they were going to each other's houses, going to synagogue. Like they weren't walking around going, I need a cheeseburger right now. I need, I need uh, some shrimp cocktail. Yeah. Like, so it does surprise me that people yeah. who self-identify as vegetarians yeah. and, and, uh, you know, and, and I don't know if there's a difference between self-identifying yeah. as vegetarian or vegan, yeah. but it does surprise me. Well, let me hit you with some more data that I love. Um, there's this philosopher, and uh, one of the UC schools named Eric Schwitzgable, and he's one of my favorite researchers because what he does is he studies philosophers. He's like a philosopher who does empirical research with philosophers. Um, and what he does is he looks at a lot of their moral beliefs. So he'll go to philosophers at a school, um, some that study moral philosophy, some that say study like epistemology, which is like the study of knowledge, which doesn't really intersect with moral issues too much. And then just other faculty um, at, his, at, the, at the school. And then he'll ask them a lot of questions like, do you think it's wrong to eat meat? Um, do you think we should donate more money to charity? Like these sort of standard 
uh, moral questions. And he sees this really interesting pattern where moral philosophers are more likely than other philosophers and other faculty in the school to say things like, it's wrong to eat meat and we should donate more money to charity. When you actually ask them, like, have you eaten meat in the last 24 hours? Did you donate to charity this month? They're no more likely than anyone else uh, to actually act on their beliefs. So there's this, there's this gap uh, a lot of times between people's moral beliefs and people's moral actions that I think is just really interesting from sort of a psychological standpoint. Um, one of my old professors from Yale, Paul Bloom, um, he's this amazing psychologist. I know I'm saying like really nice things about all these people I used to work with, but it's because they're actually just amazing. Um, he has like a TED talk, he was, but he was actually on Sam Harris's podcast. Sam Harris like this kind of big named atheist dude. Um, and they were talking about eating meat, and he said this thing I loved where he's like, if you want to know what it's like to knowingly do evil, like that's what it feels like to eat meat. Because everyone kind of knows it's wrong and they know they shouldn't do it. Um, but, but like Paul Bloom eats meat anyway. And Sam Harris, at, at least at the time, still ate meat. And they both kind of like on a cognitive level, they completely understood all the arguments against it. They're like, yeah, I know like a pig is really no different than my dog. And I know there's just this ridiculous amount of suffering that goes on factory farms. But just like, oh, I really like steak. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And it's, I think, really interesting to figure out why there's this disconnect. And I think a lot of what it boils down to is the fact that just the environments we live in are very geared to eating a lot of meat and not particularly geared to tasty, convenient vegetarian options. Right. So, um, so it sounds like for a lot of people, for people like uh, Sam Harris and Paul Bloom, that the, 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 their gap yeah. is, is sort of like an open sore yeah. that you can poke. But if I think you know, if, when, I, when I look at my Facebook feed and yeah. I... And I see the you know the feet of the meat eaters yeah they're you know it's basically like bacon <laughs> you know like like bacon yeah. has become this oh, like God. like a superhero yeah. you know that they're that they're worshiping oh, what's what's that about man I, so i think that's really interesting and i don't get it i think it's like the lamest most unfunny thing like even when i ate meat i thought that was really lame it's like it's okay. First of all, like bacon's not that good. Of all the meats you could be championing, why do you want this like salty, dry, shitty piece of pork? Like at least like talk about steak or something. Um, but but I, I mean I don't, so there's I don't know there's a lot of weird posturing that goes along with meat eating sometimes, and I think that intersects a lot. Of there's some cool research on like there's this sort of masculine image that comes along with eating meat and. Um, it could be some sort of signaling thing. But I mean, there is some really interesting, cool research about um, suggesting that your sort of average meat eater does seem to, to see something wrong with uh, eating meat. And let me describe a few studies I think are really good evidence for this. Um, I think I mentioned Hank Rothgerber earlier. Um, if I didn't, I meant to. Yeah, um, you did. Uh, he did this study basically, so he, there, there's what, what he calls the meat paradox, which is basically exactly this problem. You know, we spend you know, billions, trillions of dollars on our pets. Uh, I let my dog sleep in my bed. I'm sure a lot of people let their dogs sleep in their bed. Um, you have a very cute dog. I have a very cute dog, thank you. He's a rescue pit bull from Puerto Rico. He's actually, uh, I mentioned Lori Santos earlier. The, she's one of the professors I worked with in undergrad. I was in her TED talk. Um, she does research in Puerto Rico with this island of free-ranging racist macaques. So she, there's, there's a house she has down there that she spends, you know, like a month out of every year in. And while she was down there my senior year, this just like starving street dog showed up at her house. So she and a few postdocs and a few undergraduates were visiting sort of like rescued him and like took him to the vet and got him all cleaned up. Um, and then she emailed the lab. She's like, hey, does anyone want this dog? And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm an adult. I'm about to graduate school. I can get a dog. And <laughs> which probably objectively terrible decision. I was not prepared to get a dog at that point in my life, but ended up going up going pretty decently, and I love my dog a lot, and he's super cute. 
And, and if you go to my website, vlatchstick.com, you can see cute photos of my dog. Um, I've got a whole little tab about Toad the dog. His name's Toad. Um, so he's ridiculously cute. I love him. Lots of people love their dogs. Um, we look at cute animal videos on the internet. Um, like there are lots of cute photos of cows on the internet and then people go, any cows. So like what's going on with this? He calls this, uh, Roth Gerber calls this like the meat, the meat paradox. Um, and he lists a few strategies that people use to sort of reconcile the fact that they're eating meat with the fact that they care about animals and want to feel like good people. Um, and one of the more interesting ones, you know, one is just the idea that, that we sort of just lie about our diets. Um, I was actually, uh, I hope my friend who's, who, who, who I'm going to tell you about isn't listening to this, but he's a good friend of mine. Um, we, we, we were having a lot of conversations about like animal ethics. I think he used to be a vegetarian, stopped being a vegetarian. And then he's recently, I think, gone full vegan since. But there was a time when he was sort of wavering for a while where he like regularly ate meat and we'd like have a lot of conversations about it. So I was hanging out with him and another friend of mine who, uh, who, who eats like happy cows, which like I think is a cop-up or whatever. He, he, he cares about this stuff. Um, so, so my me, friend- me, Meaning free range from local yeah, farms. But I mean, in practice, that's not usually what he ends up eating. Um, but you know, he could go to the local Bull City Burger who gets like pasture-raised cows from like outside of Durham or whatever and like feel good about it. Um, whereas I'd get the veggie burger, but I think we have similar moral concerns. Um, so we were discussing this with my friend and at a, at a certain point, he was just like, guys, uh, uh, you know, I finally decided I'm going to be a vegetarian. And we're like, yeah, dude, that's awesome. Congrats. And then we were just hanging out. And then half an hour later, we were talking about how we should get Thai food for takeout. And then uh, he ordered a pad thai with chicken on it. And my friend and I look, looked at him, and we were like, dude, what the hell? You were just saying like half an hour earlier about how you're a vegetarian. And he's like, yeah, but I just don't like the way tofu tastes, <laughs> as if that were... <laughs> As if there were justification. But so there, there are a lot of times, I think this touches back to how many vegetarians actually go on and eat meat occasionally. Um, once you decide something's wrong and decide you're going to do something about it and you're still tempted to not do it, um, it's, it's very easy to kind of just say like, oh, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian who flubs up sometimes then you know, identifying as someone who still eats meat but eats more vegetarian meals than not. Um, so that's an interesting way people sort of get around the meeting paradox when you realize you're doing something wrong and want to stop doing it. You kind of just lie a little bit. Um, and I do want to say like my friend's great, uh, awesome dude, uh, vegan now. So, uh, don't give him too much of a hard time. Um, okay. But it sounds like you're saying that there's a lot of people in this country who are open to the idea that meat eating at some level is wrong. Yeah. I mean, so if you look at like surveys, like most people will say, no, animals shouldn't suffer in factory farms. Um, I don't think, you know, torturing animals is bad is like a controversial moral position in the U.S. Like, I think mm -hmm. we're basically unanimously agreeing about that. Um, so so there is this, like, if, if people, you know, I was interviewing Cory Booker for a piece for the Daily Beast, and he and I were talking about, he, he'd recently gone vegan. I think he's been vegan since. It's really cool. Um, and he and I were talking, Cory Booker being the U.S. Senator from New Jersey, he's amazing, he's like a superhero. Um, Didn't he save someone from a burning building yeah, when he was just, the mayor of Newark? Yeah, he'll just like go and shovel you out of your driveway in a snow day and he'd like do shit like that. Um, he's really cool. Uh, we were chatting about what made him decide to go vegan and he said, you know, he had like a plate full of eggs and he like found himself not wanting to think about where those eggs came from and that's sort of what caused him to sort of reflect a little bit more. 
where um, once he kind of notices this sort of imaginative resistance, right. he decided so, to. So if, if that's if that's true, there's you know, so most Americans have some sort of moral qualms, and yeah. I'm sure there's Americans who don't, yeah. who are like meat, 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 yeah. and you know the the cattleman's beef board and people <laughs> who are who are morally inured to it, yeah. but but that suggests that there's a very very large group of people who are in the middle, yeah. whom we, whom we who are either <laughs> vegan or plant based or whatever we want to call our ourselves could be having fruitful conversations yeah. with yeah. and it sounds like what we're doing is turning their switch to the the off position a little bit yeah so let me just uh, i think i got halfway through this study then i got my attention about my friend um so one of the one of roth gerber's um sort of strategies for you know reconciling this meat paradox is that we just stop thinking animals matter morally um we, we do what's called denial of animal pain or like denial of animal mind. You know, this is a psychology paper, so he needs to use sort of technical words. But really what he's talking about is the fact that we think animals are less morally important. We think animals are less smart. We think animals are, are um, less human-like in a lot of ways. And what he does is, is he gives people survey, or sorry, he like hands out surveys to people like he might have done online. Um, but he gives people stories about two vegetarians. Um, one who's a vegetarian because they're allergic to meat. Um, in that case, you know, if you're, reading this, you're not going to feel particularly morally threatened by it. Um, it's just someone who can't eat meat, not for moral reasons, but because uh, it reacts poorly with their body. And so some people read about that vegetarian, and other people read about a vegetarian who was moral, or sorry, who was vegetarian for moral reasons. And then he asked them a lot of questions like, how much pain do you think animals can feel? And you see this interesting pattern where the moral vegetarian, when you read about a moral vegetarian, meat eaters actually think animals are less morally important. So if you read about a health vegetarian, you think animals are basically as morally important as you would any other time in your life. So there's this weird counterintuitive effect where actually by trying to convince people that animals are morally important and that we shouldn't eat animals, you make them care less about animals. So you're actually, you're actually suppressing their, yeah. their compassion by, exactly. by, by showing them a story of someone who acts on that compassion in a way yeah. that they are not doing. Yeah, so this is, you know, this kind of goes back to the kind of dissonance stuff I was talking about with Leanne Festinger earlier, where again, we feel like good people. Uh, we see someone who makes us feel like a bad person. We're not gonna be like, oh yeah, you're right, I'm a bad person. No, we're just gonna kind of discount this moral threat and the way we, one way to do that is think animals are less more important. If someone's making you feel bad for eating animals, um, you can either stop eating animals, but like that's really difficult. And, that, and then you have to acknowledge that you've been like a really bad person for your whole life. You've been causing this ridiculous amount of animal suffering. Or you can just say, oh, you know, fuck him. Animals don't matter that much. Um, and I think that's the tact uh, more, more people go through than not. And, and again, even, in, so, even if you do convince people that eating meat's wrong, um, this sort of research from the USDA and from Eric Swishgable um, sort of suggests that it's not going to make that much difference in terms of how many animals are actually eaten. Um, so, so what I think is probably the best strategy, and I'm sure people are going to disagree, um, was, is just make being vegan easier and make the plant-based option easier and more convenient. Um, you know, we're, we're almost like water flowing downhill in terms of how we go about leading our daily lives. Um, and just any little, like any little bump, any little thing that's going to require us to exert effort from just going with the flow is going to be difficult and hard to do. Um, when you're kind of just, you know, going through the motions of life, um, the convenient, easy option is the one we're going to go with most often. And it sounds kind of stupid and obvious to say, but like, if you want people to stop eating meat, make eating meat harder. If you want people to eat more plants, make eating plants easier. Um, well, you sound, you sound like a behavioral economist. <laughs> I sound like a behavioral economist. There, there are like two sort of schools I've noticed 
for how people respond to research in behavioral economics. And there's almost like a West Coast, East Coast divide. There are a lot of like San Francisco Bay Area libertarian types who look at research in behavioral economics, who look at cognitive biases, and their response is like, oh, we need to learn about these and train our minds so that we become more rational and make more rational decisions. There was this New York Times uh, magazine feature that came out recently, I think it was the New York Times magazine, about this group called the Center for Applied Rationality, where they have these like boot camps where you go in and then like learn about behavioral economics and the ideas. I'm I'm simplifying, but right, it's like bit. like a a week long religious conversion, something of, like of that. the mind. So you're now you're yeah. now inoculated. It's yeah. more like that than not, I think. But the idea is that like you're supposed to go and then that's how you learn to make better decisions. So that's the sort of like West Coast libertarian response to this research. And then every academic I know who happens to be on the East Coast, I like to pretend like it's a hip hop feud. On the East Coast, you have people like Dan, and then you have people like Dan Kahneman who are like. No, these are these kind of biases. They're more like perceptual illusions. Um, like even if you you know the the Mueller liar illusion, where you have the two lines, where there's like uh, you could probably put it on your website to make it. I'm 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 describing it poorly. But basically, you have two lines. What's what's say say it again a little bit slower. The Mueller liar. Mueller so liar. Okay. You have like two lines with the arrows at the end facing in opposite directions. So you can kind of see it. I just drew it out there. Yeah. They're the same length, but the fact that the arrows point in different directions makes them look different lengths. So it's like a perceptual illusion. An, opt an optical illusion. Yeah, an optical illusion. You look, but the thing is, like, knowing that the lines are the same length doesn't actually change the way you see it. Um, it it kind of exists regardless, and knowing about it, learning about it, is going to make you, like, look at lines differently. Um, that's just how you look at lines. And the, this sort of school sees cognitive biases and, and weird quirks of human behavior more as perceptual illusions, you know, Knowing about the way uh, we make decisions isn't actually going to change the way we make decisions. And there's this great meta-analysis that came out a year or two ago that Dan was really excited about. Um, in, a, in a way that uh, you get kind of excited about depressing things because it confirms what you believe. Um, where <laughs> if you look at all these sort of financial literacy interventions, like try to get people to make better financial decisions, literally nothing works. There's, you can try like everything in the world to like teach people how to make better financial decisions and it won't work. Um, what really matters is the sort of environments we're making our financial decisions in. Um, and you know, there, there was this, I actually ended up writing about this for the Daily Beast too. There was a study that came out that got a lot of press in science about how to get people to support gay marriage more. Where this researcher, you know, what he said he did was he went door to door and had gay canvassers or straight canvassers talk to people about gay marriage and what he saw is that actually meeting and talking to a gay person increased people's support for gay marriage uh, down the line. And it turns out he just completely fabricated all this data, um, completely made it up. The study never happened. It was this big controversy. But part of me was like really bummed because I'd be like, man, I would have loved for this to have been real. But the other part of me was like, yeah, I knew that was wrong. I knew that couldn't have worked. I knew this went against all our research on how we know people change their minds and make moral have more belief change. Um, it's it's well, it's almost like this sounds like what everybody does every day on Facebook. Which yeah, is posting like this is the letter that Albert Einstein secretly gave to his daughter to yeah. be released twenty years after her death. <laughs> it's like yeah, I'd like to believe. Yeah. I'd like to believe. But it's that. not it's not real. It's not real. Um, it's you know, it's weird because we know people change their minds, but in terms of the psychological literature, it's almost like watching a pot boil, where when you're trying to look for it and when you're watching it, just never happens, and then you turn away and then it happens, and you're like, oh, fuck. I wish I would have seen that. So like, we know it happens, but no one knows how it happens, and it's not gonna be something as easy as just coming into contact. Well, so, so I, wanna, I wanna ask you about that, because you know, the people who are listening to this podcast, yeah. by and large, 
identify with the movement, I yeah. think. You know, if you don't, you know, if, if, if I'm wrong, I don't, get a lot of, <laughs> I don't get a lot of feedback. So please, you know, let me know in comments yeah. if I'm totally off base. But at least, the, you know, the, the selection bias and the feedback I do get is yeah. people are, are very um, inspired. Yeah. And I'm going to use that word. Yeah. Um, inspired to live a plant-based life. And yeah. a lot of them say, I was inspired by watching Forks Over Knives. Yeah. I was inspired by hearing Dr. Campbell talk. So what you're talking about is that, is, you know, if you see someone who is a moral example of something yeah. you are not yet, you're saying that our, our, the blowback is that we become yeah. less moral or we, yeah. right? But so, so how does that jibe with the fact that with, with, with all of our experiences of being inspired by someone who's doing something that we're not. Yeah, so it's, it's tricky. And I think, first of all, if you're already sort of ideologically aligned, so I think the way this often goes, and maybe you'll disagree, is I think a lot of people kind of go on to a plant-based diet kind of almost using health as an excuse. So you kind of use that as like a foot in the door. You're like, actually, I'm going to cut back on meat because it's healthier. And then they start doing that. And then once you're not doing this morally shitty thing anymore, you don't feel as morally threatened by the idea that you know factory farms are really bad for animals, so once you're you know disconnected a little bit from feeling like a bad person, you're like, oh, I'm already cutting down my meat, already not eating meat, and then you're more, I think, susceptible to this sort of moral advocacy. Um, but then it's it's sort of a mistake to assume from that that the way to convince other people is to to talk about the moral issue, even though the moral issue is what really matters. So I mean, it's it's tricky again to, to go back to like the sort of kettle boiling analogy, like. You can't point to any one flame on a burner and say, like, that's what made the water boil. It's always going to be this weird mix of a million different things. And, you know, we, we can tell ourselves stories about what caused it, but that doesn't necessarily mean um, what we point to is what did it. Well, here, here's, here's another cognitive bias that we yeah. might have is that once we've converted, we misattribute what caused our own conversion, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right? So, so I believe you know, I had this epiphany moment, you know, on the, the road to Damascus, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that suddenly yeah. I saw the light because a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are plant-based or vegans do talk very eloquently about their life beforehand, yeah. about how wrong they were. Yeah, it's almost, yeah. a, it's a point of pride. Yeah. You know, Howard Lyman was a, was a cattle rancher and then he saw the light and we yeah. love those, those conversion stories. Right, they're very archetypal. But you're saying that's probably not how it goes down. Yeah, I want to Google. Uh, I want to Google the name of the the person who wrote this. There's this classic should, should, paper. In we, could we could yeah, pause. Yeah, let's pause it real quick. Okay, okay, okay. we're back. Sorry, I just uh, there is this paper called "Telling More Than We Can Know." by Richard Nisbet. I forgot who wrote it, and I I'm glad I I got a chance to Google that real quick. But the you know, the basic idea is that. Um, a lot of times, if you ask people why they do things, they just make shit up. Um, so you could, you know, one example is, you know, you could give someone a choice between like, you're at a grocery store and you're shopping for, uh, you know, you come across a, like a, a stall and someone's like selling pantyhose. And you look at the two different types of pantyhose and someone's like, oh, these are two different brands of pantyhose, like which do you prefer? And people like look at it and then they'll look at it and they'll be like, oh, I prefer this one on the right. And they'll be like, well, why do you prefer the one on the right? They'll be like, oh, well, it's just like softer and I like the color a little more and it's a little sleeker. Um, and then they give all these reasons to explain their choice when in reality it's the exact same pair of pantyhose. And, so, it's, and it's always the one on the right. It's, I, I don't know if it's always the one on the right. We do tend to have a right bias, so we tend to prefer things on the right, if you're right-handed at least. Um, so there are all these sort of weird effects <laughs> where we just don't know why we do things a lot of times, but we always have a reason. For, like in, in our minds, we always have a reason for why we did it. Um, uh -huh. So... Again, it's like, it's like very, especially since we like clean stories more than messy stories and, you know, a messy story of like, uh, 
I was just bored and sad one day and I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna stop eating meat, you know? That's, that's less attractive than like, you know, I was reading the animal literature on how pigs are treated and I was just so appalled and my heart went out to the pigs. So I was like, no, never again. I'm never gonna eat pigs again. Like that's, that's a much nicer and cleaner story than like, I was kind of struggling with that for a while and then it just kind of happened one day and I'm not sure why. Um, so it's, it's, there, there's this tendency to want nice, neat stories and then that can, I think, in a mistaken way inform our advocacy. If, you, if you're telling yourself the reason you went vegan is because you just had your heart broken about the story about a pig then you're going to try to give people stories about pigs, and yeah. that's so, not obvious it's going to work. So we're saying the pe- people who think people are often wrong yeah. about what worked for them, yeah. and so they're then they're then applying the wrong medicine. Yeah. So um, the one the one story I wanted you to share the one study yeah. was about um, the, the the mildly racist thing. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Oh, I meant to talk about this story, but I forgot. There's this uh, researcher at Stanford that I love named Benoit Monin. He's a say again. Benoit Monin. He's okay. at Stanford. He has two really cool studies. Um, one, just to, to, to sort of, I think everyone knows kind of people are jerks or vegetarians. Um, he has one study. Uh, people just, are jerks to vegetarians. Yeah. So he asks people, just give me three words to describe a vegetarian. And then they give three words. Half of, I think, uh, I think they were Berkeley undergraduates just with no prompting give negative words to describe vegetarians. And so if, if Berkeley undergrads do it, then yeah. everyone else would you do it You can imagine, yeah. Um, but then what was really interesting is he asked people a series of questions like, how wrong do you think it is to eat meat? You know, how wrong do you think uh, your diet is? Like all these sorts of questions. But then what was interesting was he asked people, how much do you think vegetarians judge you for your dietary choices? And the more people thought vegetarians judged them, the more likely they were to give negative words to describe vegetarians. So it seems to be responding to this sort of fear of being morally judged. Um, But he has this other great study about moral rebels where he brings, I think again, Berkeley undergraduates into the lab and he asks them to do something a little racist. So he gives them a story about, uh, you know, he's like, imagine you're a police officer and you're, gonna, you're a detective and you're going to you know, figure out which of these, these three suspects committed this crime. And like all the, you know, all signs point to the one black suspect. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's not you know, like asking them to go to a KKK rally, but it's, it's enough to make your average liberal college student feel a little uh, morally icky. Um, and then the, the sort of interesting thing was, he had people refuse to do it on moral grounds. So someone said, like, I don't want to do this task. Uh, it's racist. And then the sort of neat trick of the study was he had people rate the moral rebel. Uh, the moral rebel is the person who refused to do the racist thing. So, so the moral rebel was a part of the study. He, he, was a con- he, was a con- he was a stooge. He was a confederate. So he was part of the study. Okay, so, I'm, so I, go, I, I go in yeah. to the study. I sit down, and I'm with a group of other people, and I'm asked yeah. to do this mildly racist task, and I see someone next to me saying, hell no, yeah. I'm not doing this. This is racist. Yeah. Okay. So what's interesting, if you've already done the racist task yourself, you look at the moral rebel, and you think, oh, that guy's a jerk. He's not more moral than me. He's just like doing it because he wants to look good or... Uh, you know, you could come up for, with reasons, again, this kind of dissonance thing, this person making you feel like a bad person, so you're not going to acknowledge you're a bad person because no one wants to be racist, so instead you just bring him down to your level. Um, the interesting comparison, though, is if you see the moral rebel before you yourself do the racist task, so if you haven't done the racist task yet and you see the moral rebel... All right, so I'm sitting like, there, I'm, I'm getting ready to decide yeah. whether to do it, and someone yeah. else says, hell no, Yeah. Then, then what do I do? Then you're like, yeah, that guy's principled... I like him more, uh, you know, he's got these great moral commitments. Um, so you see this interesting contrast. When your hands aren't dirty, you respond a lot more positively to more rebels than when you're sort of in the thick of it. And I think, you know, uh, I don't need to connect the dots too much about why this is relevant to vegetarians and veganism. And this is, again, why I think it's, why it's so much easier to go from, like, 
a health-based concern for eating more plants to, to moral concern than... than so in other words, once, once people are doing something, yeah. then they can convince themselves even more easily that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So once you're eating meat, you don't want to be like, oh, actually, you know, this, this diet I've had since I was a kid is really harmful to animals. You're, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, so we're, so it's, we're almost sugarcoating that pill yeah. with do it, do it for another reason that doesn't make you feel bad about yourself. Yeah. So I mean, that study is so, so fascinating. And when, when you were telling it to me when we were first meeting, I was, I was like, I know the punchline. And I'd never, th- I'd never thought of it before, but like, oh, yeah. it's so obvious. Yeah. I feel like th- there was such a, like a, a shame of, of self-recognition, yeah. like ways in which I have done that and didn't have a name for it. Yeah. So one, one thing is the, and I don't know if you, have da- if you have data on this, but being part of the plant-based movement and having lots of friends who are vegan, who are animal rights activists, on my Facebook feed, it feels like we're winning. <laughs> just, just like, you know, on my Facebook yeah. feed, it feels like Bernie Sanders is, 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 has a landslide <laughs> and everybody's yeah. liberal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, you know, objective, you know, if we're winning, if yeah. like, Every day, a new celebrity goes vegan, yeah. a new restaurant chain opens up, a new company comes out with a new meat alternative, a new Hollywood director donates yeah. money to a, and starts a school. Yeah. Are we winning? Like, is, 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 the, is the world, is America going vegan yeah. or going plant-based? I mean, I think, I don't know if winning is the right word. I think there's a lot of good reasons to be optimistic. So what I, think, I think what all this points to is the fact that... Uh, being vegan and being vegetarian, being plant-based is less weird. It's less inconvenient. Um, it tastes less bad. Um, you know, <laughs> this isn't 30, 40 years ago where the only meat alternatives were like shitty tofurkey. Um, I've had Beyond Meat chicken and it's really convincing and it's really good. Um, so anything that moves in the direction of vegan being more mainstream, being more accessible, being more tasty, being easier is, is a win for veganism. Um, whether 10, 20, 30 years from now we're going to be, you know, the dominant diet in America. Um, I don't think it's quite at that level, but I think we're moving in a good direction. I mean, like, Waka Flocka Flame, I don't know if you saw this video. This, like, really amazing, just, like, hard rapper from Atlanta, I think, is vegan. (laughs) And he made this video about, like, blueberry muffins. (laughs) And he was cooking vegan blueberry muffins. And that's, like, I love that. And that's... I couldn't imagine five, 10 years ago, this guy with a song Hard Into Paint going vegan. But and and, he is, and, and was, cool. And was his song about animal rights and moralism? Or no, about he hasn't, I, don't think he's done, I don't think he's done any, I don't think he's done any, uh, so, any animal rights-based things. But, but what's cool in the, in the video, maybe this was intentional, probably not. He, um, he doesn't talk about like the, he doesn't talk about like factory farms. He talks about like, the health energy benefits of being vegan. He's like, when my friend eats a steak, he's tired afterwards, you know? When I eat quinoa, I'm like ready to go. I'm like jumping and stuff. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, man. So even if like, I, I, I'm, I know as people who care about animal welfare and who don't want animals to suffer, it's very easy to treat that in the forefront of our minds. But I think I'm more than happy to take less animal suffering as a side effect of more healthy people. Um, I think that's, you know, anything we can do to sort of reduce the, the consumption mm-hmm. of animal products is a, is a win in, in my book. So that's, that's almost opposite from what I hear from a lot of the animal rights wing of the vegan yeah. movement, which is we don't care if people eat just the, you know, the, so the health people will say, well, you can be vegan and unhealthy. Twinkies yeah. and, yeah. and Coke are vegan. Yeah. And they'll say, you know what, all this um, emphasis on health means it's too hard for people 
and we're losing, we're, we're, we're missing the most important thing, that if people are eating their Twinkies, at least they're not killing animals. Yeah. If people are eating all their fake meats yeah. and their mac and cheese and they're not eating a healthy diet, who cares, if, yeah. you know? And, and it, it goes into the whole, the whole argument of sort of body image and, yeah. you know, it, it gets, it gets yeah. more complicated than I can, I can sort of follow. Yeah. But what, what do you, you know, is, is there validity to that, that, that by putting the emphasis on health, we're actually um, keeping people from the, the, the moral, um, the, the, you know, the important part? Yeah. I'm, I'm skeptical of that. I mean, again, there, there isn't as much data on this as I wish, but like sort of connecting the dots from what data I do know of, like, you know, no one's tested this directly, but it's very consistent with everything I think we do know about um, how people think about the psychology of eating animals that... Um, eating uh, plants for a health reason is more a foot in the door than a detractor in terms of uh, going vegan for moral reasons. Um, and, I, and, you know, like, sometimes I'll watch those, like, direct action everywhere videos where, like, people go into Whole Foods and then, like, start yelling about how, you know, meat is murder and animals are friends, not food, and, like, cows don't want to die. Like, oh, that makes me cringe a little bit. I know I'm going to probably piss some people off, but, like, I don't think that does anything at all to help animals, but I think it does a lot to make activists feel like they're doing something. Um, I think that's a dangerous trap to get in where your activism is centered around more like you feeling like you're doing good in the world and actually doing good in the world. Um, so everything I know about moral psychology to me um, suggests that I don't think a single person in the world has been convinced by a direct action everywhere protest, but it's just the fact that you're out in the world doing something that I think is what makes it attractive. Um, so a, lo a lot of my... Um Plant by vegan ethical vegan yeah. acquaintances think of themselves as abolitionists, yeah. and they're very dismissive of things like humane meat or meatless yeah. Mondays yeah. or foot in the door stuff. And they, you know, and they, whether they'll say it uh, overtly or not, but they'll think of this as slavery. Yeah, and the, you know, and I have heard them say overtly that yeah. would you consider it okay if a, if a uh, southern plantation owner just owned two slaves <laughs> instead of two hundred? Yeah, so, yeah. So I, what's, I get the, I get the. I feel that intuition very strongly, and I get where people are coming from with that. But um, I just don't think we're at a point where, you know, it's all well and good to be an abolitionist right before the Civil War, but if you're going to be an abolitionist in the 1700s, you're not going to get a whole lot of traction. And if you're doing your abolitionism at the expense of actually improving conditions for slaves, like, that's a shitty, you know, way to look at it. But, like, yeah, doing good is doing good. Um, and a great way to do good is to just do less bad. Um, so if we're at a point where actually abolishing the existence of factory farming is politically or socially feasible, then fuck yeah, let's be abolitionists. But like, we're really far from that world right now. And right now, I'm more concerned about preventing animals from being unnecessarily harmed. Um, so, but I mean, this is, this is a philosophical difference, I think, at the heart more than anything else. Um, and maybe I'm going to be persuasive, maybe I'm not, but I don't think there's going to be much data that's going to convince anyone about this. I think there's just a difference in values and a difference in opinion. But right. But again, we're you know coming coming back to the uh, the knife's edge that I wanted us to walk on, yeah. which was reducing animal suffering. Yeah. Um, and so when I, when I asked you about you know are we winning, you talked about three things. You said well it's less weird, it's less inconvenient, and it tastes less yucky. Yeah. You know, my, my plant-based cookbook authors and chefs would yeah. say it tastes amazing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, Mark Bittman has this purple carrot meal. By, it's like Blue Apron, but vegan. And I've been doing that. And it's, it's all been really good. So it's very easy to have, like, a really good vegan meal nowadays. Um, so I think we're, things are shifting in the right direction. Right. And, but the three, the three things that you talked about are all 
environmental, right? It's just, you, it's just like water flowing downhill. Yeah. It's now it's now easier. If you walk into yeah. a, a restaurant and you ask for the vegan meal, yeah. fewer people will will stare at you like you have two heads. Yeah. Um, it's what we in the biz call choice architecture. So this is, I think it's, uh, I think I made the comparison between, you know, West Coast libertarians and sort of East Coast academics. Um, East Coast academics are much more geared towards the choice architecture aspect. Um, you know, Brian Wansink, who's at Cornell, he has this book called Mindless Eating. And it's a it's sort of similar point, but like made about dieting, you know, like everyone knows they should eat healthier, but we're not doing it. So what do you do? You just change the way your kitchen's set up. You change the way restaurants are set up. Um, you structure your buffet differently. And all these small tweaks in the environment can have, you know, just changing the plate size changes how much food you eat. Like the stupidest things that you wouldn't expect to have any difference in how much food you eat. Um, yeah, when you can I'm manipulate very easily based on these just very small things in the environment. When I was visiting uh, Google as a consultant yeah. they, they, at their cafeteria, they yeah. had two sizes of plates and they had a sign there that said, Research shows that people who eat small, who take smaller plates, eat less yes. food. And that's the way I think that's the way to do it. Um, and it's it's very flattering, I think, for ourselves to be like, no, the moral argument's the way to go. You know, what we really need to do is convince people that they're you know committing these atrocities and that animals need to be saved. You know, it's it's very it's very flattering to be an abolitionist. You you can feel really good about yourself being an abolitionist. Um, but in terms of uh, actually doing things. Uh, I think, you know, this sort of choice architecture aspect, the, we just need to make it easier uh, and more convenient and more tasty. Uh, I, think that's the, I think that's really what's going to have the impact. Less so kind of this um, urge towards m moral purity. And, and it, I don't want to just single out, um, you know, vegans in this. I think you see this in pretty much every single moral issue. Um, a lot of it is just posturing. Um, and a lot of it is about sort of bolstering your own moral credentials. Um, and I think once you notice that tendency in yourself and other people, it's a lot easier to go against the grain that to sort of be like Cory Booker and kind of notice your impulse towards this thing you shouldn't be doing and then kind of take that as a cue that maybe you should uh, reassess the, the decisions you're making and the sort of uh, your, your, your strategy towards uh, animal welfare ad advocacy. Gotcha. So, so as, we, as we close, yeah. I'm, I'm imagining that a lot of people are spinning a little bit. Yeah. Uh, um, you can send emails to vlatchtook at gmail.com. Um, please be polite. But I, I do tend to, you know, if you're, if you're friendly and uh, we can, I'm happy to exchange emails and have some friendly disagreements with people. Okay, um, I'll, put, I'll put that, uh, your, your email yeah. in the show just notes. Don't, just don't tweet me things at me. I, I'm, I go off on Twitter sometimes and people <laughs> tweet me things at me. I'm much more measured on email and I know a few people can, can attest to that. Okay. So I just wanted to ask, what, 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 are, what are our marching orders? Yeah. If you're in the movement, if you, if you, you know, let's say you're really concerned about climate change yeah. and you're concerned about people's health, your family, yeah. your friends, and you're concerned about animals. Yeah. So what, how can we, you know, like what's the, what's the for dummies yeah. t top 10 list? To, to, you know, it doesn't have to be 10, but thing, things that we can do that are, that are shown to be effective based on research. Yeah. Um, well, again, there's, there's less research on this than, than I would uh, prefer. Um, I think, you know, my best guesses based on what we do know, um, you know, do, do things like throw a vegan dinner party and show your friends how good vegan food can be. Um, you know, uh, show people how healthy being vegan can be. Show people how easy being vegan can be. If you're, you know, part of a committee or something and you're buying food for an event, you know, get vegan food. Um, if, you're, if your friends can't go vegan, tell them to eat beef instead of chicken. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I mean, 
that that's all really that's all i, I think so just really like do, do it do it without making a big deal yeah about don't it. don't make a big deal about it don't shame people um i think for some like i don't know like people are obsessed with like shaming these days um i think shaming has its uses um jennifer jacket who is this researcher I'm, I'm a huge fan of she has this book called is shame necessary i'm just giving y'all a library you can read um uh, she has this book called Is Shame Necessary? And some of the examples she talks about are like things like, to, like uh, you know, dolphins getting caught in tuna nets and stuff. And all this is sort of, she has, you know, a few examples of when, when shame can work, but it's, it's very rarely an interpersonal context. It's more like people getting, uh, you know, indignant at how businesses are conducting things. And it's always kind of directed upward um, rather than uh, laterally. So, you know, shaming your friends for eating meat is probably just going to make them think vegans are dicks and they're not going to want to be vegans. Uh -huh. So it's, um, easy, it's easier to shame um, BP for, for yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, polluting the ocean. Yeah, yeah. Sh so shame BP. Don't shame your neighbor driving, uh, you know, a gas guzzler, basically. Um, you know, show them how fun it can be to drive a Prius. I think that's the, <laughs> that's the, that's the analogy I'd go with. Um, but yeah, I mean, just be chill. Make veganism seem welcoming and chill. Um, and just just make it seem fun and easy. Uh, make make being vegan more like a default option than this uh, this weird aberration. Uh, this weird morally obsessed. I mean, like no. I mean, th th this is this is what's weird. Um, this philosopher Susan Wolf. Um, she's actually at UNC Chapel Hill. She has like I think one of the best opening lines in a philosophy paper I've ever read. She it's called Moral Saints, and she's like, I'm paraphrasing, but I think it's pretty close to it. Um, I'm not sure if moral saints exist, but I'm glad that neither me nor anyone I care about is one of them. <laughs> um, and there is this, there is this idea, right? Like people who are, you know, there's this almost like puritanical um, school marmishness uh, of people who are very uh, judgy and shamey and morally obsessed. That's just really off-putting, mm -hmm. which is which is kind of intuitive because you think like being a moral person is really important. Like we all care about being moral. We don't want to be that moral, um, and we don't, and we're okay being sort of bad. Um, so there's this weird middle space we, that, that we like to inhabit. Um, so make veganism in that middle space, I think. Make it, you know, don't try to be perfect. Don't uh, be uptight about it. Um, and then I think you're going to get people a lot more open to being vegan. And then, so to tie this back, you know, this is a lot of times I, I, I like to describe myself as mostly vegan um, because I think that, that conveys that a little bit. And it's like, you know, fuck it, I'm fine eating oysters. Um, they're basically meat plants as far as I'm concerned. They're filter feeders. They don't have nervous, central nervous systems. Um, they don't feel pain. They help the environment by growing them. Like, why wouldn't you eat oysters? Um, does that make me not a vegan? Some people will probably say yeah. So um, I can kill two birds with one stone by making my, my dietary choices seem chiller and then also giving myself some wiggle, wiggle room for... Right. By the way, vegan, vegans don't like that metaphor. Do they not like meat plants? No, like killing two birds with one stone. Uh <laughs> I didn't or, even think about that. Right, or, or, or multiple ways to skin a cat. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, oh, man, I didn't even think of that. There are a lot of idioms that are, that are not very animal friendly. Yeah. How many people were skinning cats that that became a thing? <laughs> is that, did people actually skin cats? That's what I, I have no that, idea. Is that real? I don't even want to think about I it. I imagine people trying to kill birds with stones. Like, I'm sure that was a thing in our past. But, like, skinning cats? Like, that's, that's messed up, man. Yeah, well, I, I, don't, <laughs> I also don't know what cold turkeys are, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, a lot of weird, a lot of weird meat, a lot of weird killing animal idioms in our in our language. But well, Vlad <laughs> <laughs> Chudik, thank you so much for for the, it's so thought provoking. Oh, I'm and so glad, and it's been so great being on. I'm so glad you you hosted me. Yeah.
uh, well, be well and uh, all, all the best wherever life takes you. Thanks, you too. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on over 145 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. Also, if you subscribe to the podcast but not the Plant Yourself email newsletter, please consider going to plantyourself.com and signing up. I include links to articles that I write, my weekly TV show, Triangle Be Well, plus my grammar is way better in writing. Big thanks to podcast patrons, to the angels who helped make this possible, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Amy Good, for your generous support of the podcast. If you, whose name is not yet on that list, would like to support the show, you can do so by becoming a patron, by pledging a one-time amount or an ongoing donation to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. Every bit helps, and every patron reminds me of the value of the work that I'm doing in the world, and it's a way of, of giving back. You can also share this and other episodes on social media via email with anyone you think would enjoy or benefit from this or any of the conversations. Also, I love it when people write reviews on iTunes or Stitcher. So, you know, I make the podcast available freely without restriction, without paywall, without any premium content. Um, I wish I could do my consulting that way. Maybe I can. I just don't have the guts to, to try it, to do it as a, uh, a pay-what-you-can, pay-nothing, pay-whatever service. But I can do that with my digital media, with courses that I produce. And one such course is the Proteinaholic Transition Course, which you can find over at proteinaholic.com slash well, W-E-L-L. Um, because it's scalable... I can make it available to people who have no money, who just need to enter their contact information and they can participate in the course. And I can also make it available for people who want to pay to uh, reflect the value that they get and also to help subsidize um, the people who can't. So if you are interested in transitioning to a plant-powered diet, whether you've read Proteinaholic or not, um, this is an offering that I'm very passionate about. It's almost 100 short videos. I've gotten great feedback from people who've already started taking the course. And if you know anyone who says, boy, I'd, I'd like to eat better, but I don't know how, or I try and I, my head messes me up and I end up slipping, any of that stuff. It's a very comprehensive course, and it's available at proteinaholic.com slash well. And again, you can pay the $99 suggested price. You can pay more, or you can pay less, up to and including zero. In garden news, we had an unexpected frost last night. After 80-degree temperatures all last week, it dipped down below freezing. This morning, I went out to feed our rescue chickens, and I walked past the kale field, and I saw that the kale was doing okay. Even though we hadn't covered it last night, it was shaking off that little bit of frost. And it looks like it'll make a great lunch for us today and next week and on through the growing season. So my wish for all of us is that we are aware of and appreciate those resources in our own lives that are more resilient than we originally thought. And as always, be well, my friends.